0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of First Samuel, chapter fifteen, and as was already mentioned earlier, it is a rather intense passage of scripture. First Samuel chapter fifteen, beginning in verse one. And Samuel said to Saul, "The Lord sent me, sent me to anoint you king over His people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord." Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, two hundred thousand men on foot and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah the, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the end of the oxen, and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I noticed a decided lack of thanks be to God, which I didn't say it either. Um, We're talking about how to argue Christianly, and part two here is to address this question, is God violent? A sub-question of that is, is religion the chief cause of war? Where I'd like to get, where I'd like to help you get, is to the actual daily living of your lives we want to learn how to argue in a way that we would describe as christianly and what i mean by that is that we want to learn how faith in jesus christ ought to impact what we do when we disagree with someone in our family at our workplace school uh, in church in the daily living of life our faith should greatly influence how we act when we argue even if that's an intellectual argument or if it's something emotional, familiar, familial, or, or otherwise. Beyond that, my argument, my contention, is that it should become evident to us and to others as we argue that we are to never dehumanize anyone, even people who are dehumanizing themselves, that the Christian faith, faith in Jesus Christ, calls us to this, we know for sure, to not dehumanize other people. And this, we would say, in our case, we take this approach because of our faith. How do you argue at work if that ever happens, if it's ever happened before? How do you argue in your family? I know that's happened. How do you argue at church or just in daily life? Uh, It might be financial transaction or some kind of service. What do we do when we disagree with the opinion and worldview of other people? This is something that can happen often for us as Christian people. Many people don't see the world as we do. How do we talk to people who see things very differently? And how do you interact with someone who sees your faith as naive or misguided or even hateful? So we'll get to the daily living part, but I thought that it would be helpful for us to first have kind of a big consideration. There can be in any disagreement... You know that there are like unspoken causes or things that have happened through the years and then there might just be this disagreement and you have to get through that immediate thing at times but sometimes you have to address the bigger thing now you know that it's not always advisable to address the bigger thing because that can prevent from resolving more minor conflict in the case of how to argue christianly one of the big things and so i want to address it here this morning It's this consideration after we introduce how to argue Christianly. Is this idea, the question, isn't God violent and isn't religion the chief cause of war? This has been a popular perception in culture. You can hear it from people who know a great deal about history. and. It would be helpful if there were more people who knew much more about history. We tend to be very self-focused in our culture these days. And so a lot of people, this might not be a surprise to you, and I would like you to count yourselves in this, and I'll count myself in this, okay? A lot of people are willing to give opinions even when they don't really know what they're talking about. There are, however, people who are well-versed in history, and you can hear from some of them this negative view of religion religion in general, and sometimes Christianity in particular. But you can also hear it from people who know very little history. You might have spoken to people who really don't know much history at all, but they're convinced of this. Religion has caused war. It's arguably become a given in people's understanding something that they simply assume is true, even if they haven't thought about it very much. You may know someone in your life who has said, I can't possibly consider Christian faith as something that I would believe because the little bit that I've read of your Bible, your Scripture, presents a God who is just terribly violent, angry, and judgmental. So it's important to say for me that as I hear this accusation or consideration, I'm drawn to my own faith. I don't seek to argue and defeat somebody, but I do think, okay, why is it they're thinking this? And then I'm drawn to my own faith. The belief that I hold that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. Because what, what the accusation is is about the character of God. I can't believe in a God like that. So right away I move in my thinking, I'm not saying I say this, to... I believe that the fullness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. So now we might have different perceptions of what and who God is. This is my faith. And in my faith, I do not see Jesus Christ advocating violence or war, as maybe my friend would accuse God of. I don't see Jesus Christ advocating violence or war in this way, And I see that Jesus Christ calls us to conform as Christians to his character, to a Christ-likeness that should influence what we do when we disagree and what we do whenever we come across people who may see themselves as our opponents. There's probably a healthy distinction here to be made, though I don't want to give it as a blanket kind of, okay, then anything goes. There's a distinction to be made in terms of our personal behavior and in terms of the behavior, say, of a nation-state, a country. But even there. So we're going to dive right into one of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture. I would assume that this is not one that you want to read over and over again, and that's okay. But it's there, and it's not the only one like this. And it is the kind of thing that is really, really difficult for many people to get past. Including some of your non-Christian friends who might honestly want to consider things of Christian faith, but they honestly say, but I just can't get past these things. So, 1 Samuel 15, the story is told in verses 1 to 35, and it's not my intent to go through the details and preach this story. It is certainly to look at this story as an example of the things that we're talking about. Focusing on what people find most troubling. The story is in its context historically, about Saul and the Amalekites. Saul is someone who has been anointed king by Samuel, the religious leader of the day, and God didn't want to give the people a king to start with. It's important to remember that. God basically said, look, if you get a king, like, because they said, all the nations around us have kings and everything's going well for them, which is never true, right? But the grass is always greener on the other side. And so they said, you know what we really need? We really need a king, and God says, through religious leaders of the day, actually, you should follow me and not need a king. No, we want a king. Kings are what is really makes things good. And God even says, well, if you have a king, you're going to have taxes. You're going to have armies, right? In other words, if you set up these nation states like this, different, actually, shouldn't use the word nation state, but these kingdoms, then you have to protect those kingdoms and all these kinds of things happen. No, we want a king. Okay you'll get a king. And Saul is anointed to be the king. He's a tragic figure to be sure. And God, in the end, rejects Saul as king and David is chosen to replace him. And you know some of those stories from First and Second Samuel. Saul and the Amal- Amalekites, the context is opponents and enemies. Saul is the king of Israel and the Amalekites are the enemy. And in verse 3, God says to Saul, Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And if you're like me, if it stopped there, I would just about walk out. What? And I would probably share in the company of someone who says, If this is what God is like, I don't know that I'm interested. As the story goes, Saul mostly carries, out, mostly carries out what he saw as God's direction, except he does not kill the king, Agag, who is, that name is not really the real name of the king. That Agag means royal Amalekites. So he doesn't kill the king, because why? Well, he's the king. And he doesn't kill the best of the animals and everything else. Why not? Well, might as well take them. It doesn't say that he spared the children or the weak, right? And then there is this extended conversation. God, through Samuel, confronts Saul and Saul defends himself. Keith didn't, we didn't get Keith to read all of this, but basically what happens is Saul defends himself and God says that he's angry because Saul has disobeyed. And in the end, Saul is rejected as king. And eventually, as we said, this will lead to David being anointed as the king. It's a nice little story, but to be fair, it's not the only time in scripture that God appears to be really into killing. Deuteronomy twenty nine sixteen to 18, do not leave anything alive that breathes. You shall utterly destroy them. Joshua sixteen fifteen to 21, the battle of Jericho, you know, and, and when the city was destroyed, they utterly destroyed every living thing, man and woman, young and old, ox and donkey with the edge of the sword. This is religious warrior language. It's not absent in our world today. There are parts of the world where groups of people, not so much right now in the Christian faith, but in some other faiths, but Christian faith has had its fair share of this, where people feel it's it's given to them as their religious duty to wipe out a whole other group of people or a whole other nation or land. So we take a step to the side here and note that something can happen in our faith. Sometimes because of texts like this and our own sense of being right or a religious confusion we can cause it can cause us to think that our role is to battle opponents instead of grow in faith. So we take injunctions from scripture like stand firm and we automatically assume that means to stand firm against someone else. In the New Testament and in faith in Jesus Christ, stand firm, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That standing firm might be against some kind of religious heresy, but it is mostly standing firm against your own sinfulness, misunderstanding, and ignorance. What can happen, though, is that you can begin to see yourself as part of some beleaguered minority And then you start to see... Now, I'd like you to consider this in your own faith. You start to see yourself as some kind of part of a beleaguered minority. And then you think, look at how all the world has gone another way than what I think. See what I mean? It's really bad out there today for so-and-so, such-and-such. But it's good that I believe this because it's really, really bad. Now, whether or not that's true, the unfortunate consequence of some of that thinking is that you can begin to think of out there as opponent. And what becomes important to you in Christian faith, and sometimes I'd say religion more, what becomes important to you in religion, even energizes your religion, is thinking of opponents. How you're going to live in this world because everybody else, right? Without the light that you have, it's all darkness. Darkness. That means that your energy comes from having opponents rather than growing in faith. The energy of your religious life. And I can describe to you the difference. Because you know, I, as I told you last week, I like a good argument. And I can sometimes feel energized when I'm arguing with someone. Um, But that's an entirely different energy in faith than the energy of trusting in Jesus Christ, my Lord. submitting myself before him, seeking other people's good above my own, which I'm not good at, there's an entirely different sense. If you start to confuse and think that God has called you to fight all these battles, your faith will take on a particular tenor. Ken Bell recently looked for all the times in Scripture that we are called to defend God or fight for God. And he couldn't find one. God never says go and fight for me. You can think of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers come to arrest Jesus. This is in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 18. Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And it's a remarkable scene because you remember what happens? He cuts off the ear of the guard and it's it's such a beautiful it's not the last miracle of jesus resurrection i suppose and other miracles from the risen christ but in his life before the crucifixion the last miracle to heal someone who had been attacked by his own In other words, Peter saw this person as an opponent and an enemy, and he drew out the sword. And what did Jesus say in various, depending on what account you read, Jesus basically said, If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Perhaps the worst genocidal act, the biggest in Scripture, is the flood. Noah and the flood it's interesting that's become such a lovely children's story because the story is about most of the world getting killed but it's cute (laughs) I mean you could because there's animals so anything with animals you can make nice right Genesis 6 5 and 6 says and God saw that humanity was evil every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time and so he determined to blot them out and then you get Noah and the flood There's a clue in that little passage as to God's interaction with evil and response to evil. And so we'll start there in offering some kind of explanation for the violence that we have spoken about. So this would be option one. So basically what I'm saying is when you're confronted with these kinds of stories, if they bring something up in you, if you even care at all, I mean, I suppose you could go, "Oh, I don't know. But in a way, you're still choosing one of these options. One of the options, and we need to be honest about this so and I don't mean to send you out not believing. Um, but it is true that for most people what, what many people what stops people believing in faith is something from church. It's not usually something from outside the church. So you could hear a passage like this, and this could conceivably happen in our own midst. I just trust the Holy Spirit, so we'll go with that. But you could hear a passage like this and go, no, I don't believe. I'm, I'm giving this up. Or I'm not even considering it. Don't believe is one option and believe is another. And we're going to have two categories in the believe. There's obviously much more to don't believe that I can speak about this morning. And I want to handle this responsibly, honestly, and even compassionately. It, a, there, it is not an entirely non-valid response, is it? <laughs> For people to say, I just don't. Right? So can you understand that with some of your friends who might level that accusation? Can you say, I get that if you think this in a certain way and if you, right? But here's what don't believe, what happens. You could say, I don't believe because this simply proves why the, why the Bible is not true and why the God of the Bible is barbaric. And from there, it's a short jump to religion causes most war, and you will continually, through history, get new expressions of this. One of the most recent, though that is even becoming dated now, is Richard Dawkins, who likes to talk about how religion, in his mind, has caused most wars in history. There are problems with this way of not believing. One of them is that you have to turn off your mind. The accusation would be that Christians and in some cases, the Jewishness of this document, the Old Testament, that religious people have turned off their minds, but it is also true that if you simply say, well, I don't believe that, that you're turning off your mind to some degree. An extensive work, it's a good book, it's thoughtful, not super easy to read, but it's worth it, called The Myth of Religious Violence by William Kavanaugh, takes up this accusation and spends a great deal of time going into history, Military history, war, sociology, uh, politics, economics, and all other kinds of things to say. If you look at wars, even the wars in history that have been called religious wars, they are almost entirely caused by other things, and religion is used to use people to get them to your side. There's all con- I don't have time to go into the why's of this, but the basics of it are that wars are almost entirely in history caused by political, economic, and social argument. All various points of evidence is that one would be, otherwise you would have one religious group against another religious group, and that would be mostly what it's like. But what you find is argument within the same religious group to protect political and economic interests that differ. That is common across the nature of whatever warfare there is. So he spends a great deal of time basically showing why. And this is not a Christian apologetic book. This is a book that examines history for the larger world and basically says, if you're walking around this idea with this idea that religion has caused most wars, you should probably think a little bit more. So one is you have to kind of turn your mind off to that reality. The second is that there is an idea that if we get rid of religion, that everything will be okay. You may have had friends who've said this to you. Because religion causes violence, that's their presupposition, then if we get rid of religion, we'll be left with everything just good. A Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor who has an absolute master work book called A Secular Age, but it's like that thing. Uh, he addresses this at length. He's World renowned philosopher. Again, not speaking primarily from his Christian faith, though he does have a Catholic background. And he talks about what's called the story of subtraction. He says if people have the idea that there's all these good things, like human rights, that's a pretty good thing, right? Human rights. Human rights and compassion and whatever else, the idea that people are equal. If we just hold on to those things, so here's culture and this big, here's the world in this big box, we hold on to those things, but let's take religion out. He says the problem with all of that is we got to the concept of human rights and compassion and love your neighbor because of religion in large, large measure. But most people don't know that. And they think that if only we got rid of religion, people's natural way of dealing with each other is compassion. I doubt that. So don't believe has its problems. You could choose not to believe, but even intellectually, this can be lazy. So I'm not asking you to go out armed with these two points I've given and attack your friend's disbelief. But it's helpful to know. Secondly, you could believe instead. Now, I'm holding off on the side that in Christian faith, we declare that the act of belief is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So, it isn't simply, hmm, should I believe? You are overwhelmed by the presence of a loving God and you believe. So, I don't want to send that off that this is only intellectual. But, in terms of our discussion for this morning, these two parts of what might it mean to believe. What I'm saying is, what does it mean to believe and try to make sense of some of these stories where God appears to be extremely violent. First, The first way of belief, and I would think that in this church and the background of this church, Plymouth Brethrenism and kind of evangelical background, that most people fit into option, into part one of this option, and that is to say, we don't get it, I don't really understand it, and I guess I just have to leave it. I don't really like it either. And then, if you spend a little more work, you might say, Well, let's take a look at what the story is actually saying. So, we have in our midst some people who are really good at understanding the Old Testament, and they could help us a great deal by saying, Well, let's look at what was actually happening with the Amalekites. And some notes in that kind of discussion would say, Well, remember, it wasn't like Saul was saying, Oh, God, I don't want to kill people. Please, Lord. The accusation wasn't that Saul was too compassionate, he did kill children and young and old. What he kept alive was king, power, and the best animals, plunder. So, you can unpack the story itself. The second element there, and this one we need to be careful with, is the nature of evil. In other words, if you're faced with real evil, what do you do? And in this story, the Amalekites are depicted as that kind of evil. They had tried to destroy, totally destroy this nation, these people of God. And they would try to do so again. It even moves up to Esther, to the Haman story. Ag, how do I say that word? Agagite. That's that word, agai. Agag. Amalekite royalty. And if you look in a, another Old Testament story of the people of God being entirely threatened their entire existence, it comes from this Amalekite line. Back to Genesis chapter 6. What does God do when faced, when he sees a world... I'm not saying our world right now. I'm saying Genesis 6 before the flood where he says the heart of people is their inclination is only evil all the time. So you could say I don't get it but if God chooses to deal with evil then I have to trust even though I hate it. That is a possible... I mean some of you might say I don't even hate it. I just like that God wipes out evil. And the Amalekites were horrible and he should have killed them all. I hope there's not too many like that here but it is one possible way of believing and seeking to explain. There are problems with this, and they're big. The first problem is that it leaves us open to incredible violence. In other words, we can begin to think that faith is about having opponents and defeating opponents, and at at the extreme, it's even okay to kill people. It differs, of course, it's, don't you think it's always interesting how in Scripture you get all this killing after the Ten Commandments do not kill? It's good to hold these things in, you know, to understand and to study and to, but that's how the study starts, by seeing some of those things. What does this mean? So we're still open to violence, potentially, in this case. And it opens us up because we misunderstand things all the time to think that our role is to act for God and if we think something needs to be dealt with violently, well then, our faith justifies that. It's a terrible problem. So what it means is that there are still religious people in the world, including Christians, who think it is okay to do great violence and this way of believing can sometimes open us up to that. But the other way of believing, so I'm giving you the two extremes here, the two poles. On the other end is to emphasize that it is Jesus Christ that shows us the fullness of the character of God. So we have all this scripture, but if I really want to know what God is like, I look at Jesus Christ. He himself said that. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God before creation. And Jesus Christ is loving and self-sacrificial and not violent. And any understanding otherwise is because of the culture of the day, not religious enlightenment. The extreme of this kind of view, and I don't want you to necessarily close yourself off to this right away, though in our background, our really evangelical background, uh, as soon as I say something like this, people, uh uh uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. The extreme of this kind of view is to say, God didn't really tell people to utterly destroy men, women, children and all the animals. And there are religious scholars and biblical scholars who will fall into this camp. And they will say, the way they get there, is they say, look, and they love scripture and love Jesus. Some of them. I'm not saying all of them. I don't know. It's not my job to figure all that out. But the ones who share my faith say, okay, There are parts of this scripture that you read, I just opened to Leviticus, that would be some of them, where you say, well, obviously that doesn't apply to today. We wouldn't do things that way. And they they include in this an injunction like this. And that God doesn't even necessarily come against things that we know now are not reflective of Christian faith. Open up the New Testament and see... Polygamy, multiple wives, all kinds of things. So is that is everything okay? Well, no, we don't believe everything's okay. But we interpret in a particular way. I'm not advocating for either one of these camps. Please understand that. I'm describing them to you. The world, including Christian faith, this is maybe going to make you a little more upset, the world, including Christian faith, has become less and less violent through time. I'll say to you, and I obviously, I believe it to be true, we live in the, the least violent time in history, right now. Right now you're going, oh no, it's terrible right now. I'm not saying there isn't violence. I'm saying we live in the least violent time in history. And if you were to say to me, no, then I simply would say, tell me what time was less violent. So, I'm telling you that idea because it's culturally to understand that we used to think war was virtue, right? All you got to do is go to a sporting event and listen to national anthems. I mean, the bombs bursting in air, yay! People dying, right? War used to be virtue, culturally. And uh, this is not free from culture, from interpreting it in the context of the day. So, that's what some, not all, biblical scholars will do. They would say these texts demonstrate the time more than the character of God. I don't know. I do know this. To see the fullness of God, I am asked to do one thing alone. Fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. That's my faith. That's my Christian faith. I believe all scripture is God-breathed, but I am saved by Jesus Christ, my Lord. So I humbly come before him and I say, Lord Jesus, what do I do with this story? And I am sensitive to people who fall in one category or the other for their explanation. And I don't say, well you can't possibly be Christian if you don't think like I do. I don't know about the Amalekites and Jericho and those stories. I do accept this as the word of God. But here's the wonderful thing. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you, love your enemy. I'm looking for an answer, right? I'm looking for a way to talk with someone about these things, but in the end, the answer is faith. I fall on my knees before the Lord Jesus Christ, and I say, did you say that? The problem with this explanation, and some of you have already felt it, is that it can lead us to elevate ourselves above the text, right? In other words, if I don't like something in Scripture, then I'll just explain it away. And this can become incredibly problematic and can lead us away from understanding our faith in Jesus Christ, where we become the center rather than him. A quick but important note here that I can't spend time with And that is that even in the Old Testament, it is a misunderstanding to characterize God as warmongering, hateful, and violent. God is the God of compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He tells us to love, to welcome the stranger. But why I care about this for you and what this has to do with arguing is that as you consider your faith in the world, you can become kind of silently apologetic. Like you think that this is an argument that the world has won and we can't talk about this. And so you, th- you kind of think of your faith as not that credible, even though you have this faith. You can become embarrassed, unable to consider that your faith can be a blessing to other people. There are people who think that religion is dumb and dangerous. And like anything us humans do, it can be dumb and dangerous, but so can politics and economics and everything else. What are you to do if you encounter this? The question is, how would you engage with culture? And as we move towards communion, I want to just give you three possible ways. I won't unpack them today. How do we engage with culture? First, you can oppose. You can become oppositional. And there's two ways of doing this. You can have a defense against or a purity from. And all I can do is say, just look at religious groups through history, including the ones you've grown up in, and you might see that, yeah, we were mostly defensive against the world. We thought the world was terrible and we were here to kind of... Or, um, and the second one would be more of an Anabaptist tradition, Mennonite and the rest, right? They're pacifists, but there's still an oppositional stance because it's purity from. Don't mix. Or you can accommodate to the world and say, well, at, at all costs, we need to be relevant, and that's going to bring another host of problems, Right? I would think that the the best way is this way that James Davison Hunter speaks about called faithful presence where we seek to honestly engage with the world and in humility to affirm the things that we see reflect Jesus Christ and to critique the things that we see don't in ourselves and in the world at large. Now let me show you as we move to communion something amazing. Marg put Kleenex on my... uh, Bible here before the service and if I needed it it would be now but I think I'll get through it but this would bring tears to your eyes in the Holy Spirit when if by God's grace you can see it how will evil be dealt with how will sin hatred be dealt with how will violence be dealt with as my father used to say my dad I hate violence if you use violence I'll kill you how will evil be dealt with what can be done Now look at the cross behind me. He did not spare himself. And he took on all things that are non-life and darkness and evil. And he took them into himself. In the garden, he said, If it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. That was all the evil in all of history. And within moments when he was arrested. So after he prayed that prayer, yet, not my will, but your will, it was very soon after that that Peter was cutting off the ear of that guard and Jesus was saying, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword, and saying also, I must drink the cup. The wonder is that he took all of this into himself. So I don't know about the Amalekites. I don't know how to answer some of these difficult questions but I do know when somebody asks me don't you think the Bible is just all violent I seek in the Holy Spirit to find a way to say let me tell you about what I believe that he took on all the sin so that we could live the lion will lay down with the lamb we will know perfect peace And then this to end as we move to communion. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Let me pray for the communion. This is Jesus Christ giving his life for the life of the world. And as you receive, you ask, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to what Jesus has done for me and this whole world. We say you are welcome to receive if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to know Jesus Christ, and it is also no shame to let the bread and the cup pass. We'll have the ushers pass it out, and you receive it. And after communion, we'll also take the offering. Let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this um, rather rough uh, endeavor through understanding some of the more difficult things that can arise in our faith. We pray that we would see that all Scripture is God-breathed. We pray that we would also see, Lord God, that your fullness is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to be better students of the Old Testament. For those who never read the Old Testament, we pray and ask that we would, that they would. And Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Now as we turn to communion, we ask that you bless this bread and this cup, the reminder always of what your judgment in the end means. It means that you have taken, Lord God, into yourself all the darkness ever in the world, and you have defeated it in Jesus Christ. Let us put our hope in you. We pray also for the offering that will be taken, that it would be used, that we would know and others would know, Lord Jesus, of your love. So bless this time we ask in Christ's name. Amen.
2: you